Welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and every week I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. In this week's continuation of our Halloween spooky season series, we're coming in with a cryptid episode, but probably not what you're expecting. Cryptozoology looks at hidden animals and those unknown to science. The things that most people would think of as a cryptid would be things like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, creatures and monsters that have been reported for centuries, even millennia, and that a lot of people may still look for, but scientific evidence just can't seem to be documented for them. There are other groups of animals that have been adopted by cryptozoologists in a way, and these are animals that have been labeled as extinct, usually recently within the last 100 years or so, but yet people still claim to have sightings or see evidence that the animal still exists, like hearing calls, finding footprints, or even the occasional bones found in areas where you would expect to find the animal. While I may eventually cover Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster for funsies in the future, today we're going to talk about one of these recent extinctions. This week, we are going to be talking about the thylacine, and buckle in, this might just be a long one. Usually I have about two and a half pages of notes in short paragraphs, and today we've got a solid four pages of me going down some rabbit holes. So thank you for joining me on this ride and for enabling me to do these things. The thylacine, also known as the Tasmanian tiger or Tasmanian wolf, was a marsupial, the largest known carnivorous marsupial. It was nocturnal and crepuscular, so primarily active at night and around dawn and dusk, and while there weren't any ecological studies that have ever been done on them, they may have eaten possums, wombats, birds, kangaroos, and even sheep once the European settlers introduced sheep to the area. It was also a shy animal and preferred to avoid people which is pretty easy to do when you're nocturnal, and even a few people think that they may have turned or switched to being nocturnal specifically to avoid people. Even though it's a marsupial, descriptions often compare it to a medium-sized short-haired dog, but with a thicker and much more muscular tail like you would see with a kangaroo, so kind of thick at the base and pointed. They were a light brown or yellow-brown color with dark brown stripes along the hindquarters and back, standing at about two feet tall at the shoulders, and the body length about three to four feet long, with the tail adding another two feet. So it is a pretty distinctive animal, which will be important to remember later. Originally, it ranged across Australia, New Guinea, and Tasmania, but was never thought to be very numerous across its range. So a lot of what we know or think we know, since there weren't any studies done, come from notes from naturalists in the early 1900s and late 1800s, and then what notes or what notes researchers have compiled from bounty records. From these, we know that the thylacine preferred savanna woodlands and coastal plains, but would also live in some forested areas with nearby rock outcroppings that they would hide out in during the day. Their decline is thought to have started some time ago, with many potential factors contributing. There was already a decline in genetic diversity starting possibly around 70 to 120,000 years ago, which can make a species particularly vulnerable to disturbances like climate changes, as well as different diseases. 
Before European settlers even began colonizing the area in the early 1800s, the populations in Australia and New Guinea are thought to have vanished, leaving Tasmania as a final refuge. By settlement in 1803, the thylacine population was thought to have been between 2,000 and 4,000 individuals. Of course, we have no way of knowing if this was already after a lengthy decline that may have started years ago, or if this was, or if these numbers indicated or were characteristic of a more stable population. Within the first 10 years of the 1900s, there was a significant decline in the remaining population. Based on bounty records, just between 1905 and 1908, there was estimated to be a 63% reduction in the population, signaling a population collapse. In 1936, the last known thylacine died in captivity in the Beaumaris Zoo in Hobart in Tasmania on September 7th. And now as tribute, September 7th is known as National Threatened Species Day throughout Australia. So, as I mentioned, there were several factors that contributed to the eventual official disappearance of the thylacine, with some people saying that it was solely the bounty hunts, others saying it was just disease, and others still saying it was a complex combination of factors, which is more likely the explanation. Slightholm and Campbell produced or published a study in 2016 that, as the title of the paper states, is an assessment of the 20th century thylacine populations, and they compiled these notes for their research from naturalists at the time, the plentiful bounty records, as well as sightings from Bushmen and knowledgeable farmers of the area to try to include all of the various opinions at the time and to tell a story of all of the factors at play and what some of the different triggers were to cause the eventual population collapse and decline to extinction. So the first one to mention, I think, is the introduction of feral dogs, which were introduced to Tasmania with the colonists. While the dogs didn't directly compete with the thylacine, since they were diurnal and the thylacines were nocturnal, a lot of the sheep kills that were happening at the time were blamed on thylacines, but the feral dogs were actually to blame. The number of sheep being killed by what they th were blaming on the thylacines caused a lot of outrage and led very directly to the establishment of bounties for the thylacine, which is the next thing to talk about. Most of the bounties were started by the federal or by the government, but there were a few private bounties as well. The government bounties lasted for about 20 years and ended in 1908, with the last payouts not happening until 1909, and the private bounties ran from 1830 to 1914. Over the 20 years of the government bounties, estimates say that 2,206 thylacines were killed. Despite these numbers, before the population collapsed in 1905, the kills only represented about 4-5% to of the population. So while the bounties definitely didn't help anything, it isn't considered the sole trigger for extinction. Uh, if it was, then we would expect that the thylacines would disappear from the most heavily hunted areas first, and that's not what happened. Next, we have disease, and granted, all of these studies were retroactive, 
but most researchers point to introduced diseases as at least the big trigger of the decline and collapse. In 1934, the Tasmanian Fauna Board acknowledged that disease was one of the primary causes of the decline, and many people at the time, while you know hunting the, the thylacines, uh, described them as having a distemper or mange-like disease that first appeared in the, 18, in the 1890s and then spread from the east of the island to west over the course of five years. Since both feline and canine distemper are not transmissible to marsupials, and those would be the two, um, the two distemper diseases that would have been introduced to the island, it is thought that it could have been a sarcoptic mange introduced from the feral dogs, which is a highly contagious mite infection known to infect or known to be able to infect marsupials. In advanced stages of infection, it is capable of damaging internal organs and decreasing the reproductive abilities of the infected animal. So it's also possible there may have been two pathogens two pathogens sweeping through the island at the same time, but this mange seems to be a widely documented disease. It is also interesting that the east-to-west progression parallels the spread of the devil facial tumor disease that is causing problems in Tasmanian devil populations right now, but that's a conversation for another day. Habitat loss is another factor. Since once sheep farming was introduced to Tasmania, the grasslands and woody grasslands were taken over by sheep farmers. There is still some substantial thylacine habitat in Tasmania, so this isn't considered a major factor by a lot of researchers, but with the other stressors, it is still an important factor. The number, the more stressors that pile up, the more the small things matter. Hunting and the fur trade was next. While thylacines weren't necessarily hunted for their fur themselves, their prey species were, and the fur trade was described by a lot of people at the time, from naturalists to the hunters themselves, as a systematic massacre of species, with the scarcity of game becoming a big concern. Finally, we have the wild animal trade, including the trade for museums. 125 thylacines were caught and displayed in 13 zoos, and the incredible majority of these were wild-caught instead of being sold between zoos or bred in captivity. It is also important to consider that about 450 thylacines were killed for scientific collections in museums and universities. When we compare these numbers to the bounty kills, these aren't incredibly high numbers, but once the population went into decline and they became increasingly rare, every kill matters, and it would have been best not to do that. So remember that the genetic diversity has been very low for thousands of years and was declining. This will make them particularly susceptible to new diseases, as mentioned. So when the mange started sweeping through, that would make for a, bigger, for a major trigger for the decline. Once the disease starts sweeping through, then the bounty hunts, the habitat loss, and other human influences, it made for perfect conditions for the decline and eventual extinction. So, after the last captive thylacine died in 1936, there were searches for more thylacines in 1937 and 1938, 
in, to try to confirm whether the wild populations had, had officially died out or not, to try to find some evidence of wild thylacine populations. Between 1936 and 1937, reports of thylacine sightings in the West continued to be published in newspapers, so all three of these searches occurred in the West and Northwest areas of Tasmania. In the first search, in April of 1937, they reported unspecified signs of thylacines, so I'm assuming this would mean things like they found footprints, probably some scat, and they had some documented sightings from Bushmen and heard their calls in the wild. In November of 1937, another search was carried out in the west, a little bit south of the first search. In this one, they found tracks in 11 places that they estimated came from at least four different individuals. The final search was in November of 1938, and they found and made casts of prints in several areas. While they did find prints in all of the areas and evidence of thylacines, which would indicate that a population survived at least into the late 1930s, there were not any direct observations of thylacines during the searches. For the next 50 years, there were no official documented observations of thylacines to provide a reliable, definitive evidence of the existence of an established population, so it was declared extinct by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, in 1982, and then by the Tasmanian government in 1986. It is worth noting that legal protections were actually declared for the thylacine July 10th in 1936, just two months before the last thylacine in captivity died. So since it's been declared extinct, this is where things do get kind of weird. Despite being declared extinct, sightings have continued to occur, and in many cases, these sightings either don't seem to be taken seriously or just, quote, don't count since they don't result in the production of a body or even, in many cases, fo clear photographic evidence, even if these sightings are recorded by reputable individuals. Even after the last known thylacine died in 1936, sightings continued to occur through 1940 and later, with the Department of Conservation and Land Management having recorded 203 reports in Western Australia, an area where thylacines were thought to have been extinct for decades. Or these sightings were recorded between 1936 and 1998, often around southern Victoria. In Tasmania, in 1945, a respected zoologist, David Flay, who is actually the zoologist that has filmed and photographed the last captive thylacine, and this video is actually available on YouTube. Earlier this year, they um, enhanced and colorized the video, so you should go find that. Um, he went on an expedition around the Hayne River area in Tasmania, and actually had a near capture of the thylacine, with only a tuft of fur remaining in the trap. In more recent sightings, a park ranger in 1982 saw a thylacine at night, in close range, and even watched it for several minutes, before reaching for his camera nearby, which then spooked the thylacine and it went, ran off, so he didn't get any pictures of it. A field search ensued, but no further evidence of this animal was found. So here we have sightings of two fairly reputable people, yet 
there wasn't production of a body, so it is what it is. Sightings have even been reported into modern day, with more than 1,200 records between 1910 and 2019 being collected by the University of Tasmania, which they then used to create a Tasmanian thylacine sighting records database. According to a news article released earlier this year, these researchers think that the thylacine may have actually gone extinct in the late 1990s or even the early 2000s with some slight chance of an ongoing population in the wilderness of Tasmania. Of course, other researchers disagree, with some still saying the likely extinction date was when we think it was sometime between 1936 and 1943, and an extraordinarily slim chance of a surviving population. So, while it is possible that all of these people that have reported signs are lying, misidentifying other animals, misidentifying their footprints, People like naturalists, park rangers, and even the Bushmen. So all of these people are unlikely to be misidentifying wildlife. And the thylacine is a pretty distinctive animal. So even in the thylacine sighting records database, they have posted thousands of sightings that can be documented, but they have said that e that they kept some of the best sightings for themselves. So those some really great ones haven't been published. There are also other organizations out there trying to prove the continued existence of the thylacine, increase awareness, and also just let people know that they won't instantly be told they're crazy or lying or drunk if they come forward with a sighting. The Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia has received hundreds of sightings um, maybe even thousands, some as recent as 2020, so just last year. And they also have found some trail cam footage of the striped haunches of an animal that looked to be about two feet off the ground. Of course, it's just the butt, so while there aren't a whole lot of animals it could be, you can't really look at this video and say that it is definitive proof of a thylacine, but it does provide hopeful evidence that something could be out there. Of course, people do say that it's a hoax and that they photoshopped it, but as the people of the thylacine awareness group say, if they're going to photoshop a thylacine, wouldn't they make it clearer and why would you set up a hoax to give not quite good enough evidence that it still exists? You would think they would make it better if they were photoshopping things. This video is available on YouTube and you should definitely go find it, and while it's not the most mind-blowing video out there. It is still really cool because it is very close to the camera. There are also several other YouTube videos out there as well. I saw one where people found a jawbone that they think could have been from a thylacine and another where somebody recorded an animal that at least structurally looks like it could have been one running across a field at sunset. Go to the YouTube. Do it. One of the things that I find particularly interesting about witness reports is that while some of them provide room for misidentification, there are also plenty of them where there is literally nothing else these people could have seen. In one 2020 report published on the, the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia website, a man in New South Wales and Australia saw an animal in their sugarcane field a few meters away that looked not quite the same as a dog, light brown with stripes on the back, and when the animal was spotted, it was in evening time just after dark. So 
that 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 is your that's almost the exact same description I gave you earlier this episode of what a thylacine looks like. In another sighting in 2019 in Victoria, this person saw an animal a bit bigger than a fox with a thick tail like a kangaroo, a brown body with stripes on it. And so again, that's also a thylacine with these two reports. There are very few other animals it could have been, and even if you have a mangy fox in the area, like some reports are discounted as, the tail would look very different. The, a mangy fox tail would just all be very skinny, and it wouldn't look like the same muscular, thick-based tail that the thylacine tail is supposed to look like. So these are people that are seeing an animal that fit the description of a thylacine to a T. It's not like distant Bigfoot sightings where... People could have seen bears standing on their hind legs, or maybe people in camouflage suits, or even if they've heard owls screeching in the woods. And maybe mangy wild animals. I don't know. It may have it may happen where some of these sightings are going to be people making it up or seeing another animal and just misidentifying things. But when you have thousands of sightings over decades, there's something to that. These aren't thousands of people making it up. And yet, because clear pictures haven't been documented, even if clear pictures do come out eventually, there's still going to be people that are going to say it's CGI and Photoshop. So, I don't know. People just seem to discount all of these sightings. So, as we close out this episode, it is not impossible for animals that we once thought to be extinct to be rediscovered. At least in Western science, we thought the coelacanth went extinct 66 million years ago, but then we found populations of them just chilling out in the ocean in the 1900s. So rediscoveries don't happen all the time, but they happen. And in cases like the thylacine, where so many people are continuing to see them for such a long period of time, it sure would be exciting if we could eventually provide some definitive proof of its existence still. There are still researchers out there, including those associated with the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia, that are still actively searching for some definitive proof of the thylacine. And I think I saw on their website that their president is actually about to go or either is about to go on or is currently on a two-year expedition specifically to find solid evidence of a thylacine. With so many sightings and the increasing quality and accessibility of trap cameras, maybe one day we can declare the thylacine once again a living species. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and be sure to tune in next week to next week's episode. <laughs> Please rate and review on iTunes and Podbean if you're there, and you can also find me on Amazon Music and Audible. Keep an eye out for the upcoming Patreon page, which I'm hoping to get out soon, to help support this podcast. But in the meantime, share us with somebody that you know that could use some more animal facts in their life, which is honestly everybody. If you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com. Audio editing and recording done by me, Olivia Streit. Intro music created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening.